Hi, everyone. I am filling in for Martin, who is on the road. And uh, what can I say? It is so great to be back. I'm very excited about this guest because I know nothing about him. Um, Rob Zwitek. Uh, let's see. I'm just going to hit a couple of the highlights here. Um, he is a UFO researcher with the Coalition and the board of the National UFO Historical Record Center. Um, he has been working with MUFON since it uh, looks like 1976. Um, he also, in his past, is, has had great experience in all different sciences. In fact, he had a double major of uh, earth science and physics. Um, I'm just going to bring him on because I, I can't wait. I love opening new packages. And sorry, Rob, you're a new package. And he's taken a while to uh, come down the chimney here with a new package. Hello, Rob. Martin. Uh, Dean, sorry about that. Great to, uh, great to see you and good to be on the show tonight. Glad to have you here. How are you, first of all? Fairly well. Thank you very much. I hope hope you're doing well. I am. Um, I, I want to dive in and, and, and get into how you got into this and, and where you're going. But first, I want to kind of get your opinion. Uh, there have been two videos that were dropped recently. One was the um, Jeremy Corbell and um, George Knapp. Um, still, which is from, I guess, one second of footage, which in the total footage is, is four seconds, but the actual footage of the, this spherical metallic ball is one mm -hmm. second. I don't know if you got a chance to look at that. And then Dave Beatty also had some footage that he showed. It looks like flare footage. Want to get your take on that. Yeah, I haven't seen any in the last day or so, you know, so um, busy with a couple things here. Yeah, well, I can tell you, I, I took a look at it. Um, it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of waiting for the some of the 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 pundits to take a look at this. Um, anytime I get new information, the first thing I do is I go into, uh, and I don't know if you do this as well, I'm assuming you do, you go into uh, analyst mode. Uh, I'm not a skeptic or a debunker, but I do like to analyze and take a look. And, um, you know, anytime someone serves up something, it's kind of, um, you know, exciting to dive in, but I want to make sure that, you know, that it it feels credible oh, yeah, in all the boxes. That, that, that absolutely, what I, absolutely what I do. I, I probably look through hundreds of, uh, of videos and, and still still shots that occur in the, um, the MUFON's uh, case management system each year. I'm, I'm always trying to find some good cases to speak about or to uh, refer someone to. And uh, so, yeah, I see my, my uh, fair share, maybe more than my fair share of uh, of videos, most of which aren't all that great, but there's some that are rather amazing. The diamond in the rough. So let's back up and kind of start where it all started. What was the um, what was the impetus? What was that that rosebud moment for you where you went, oh, this is something? Yeah, the, the impetus. Uh, basically, it was the fact that UFOs and were uh, f fairly big news items. And the University of Colorado study was going on, and sightings were appearing in in the local newspapers, and and, and books were coming out, and, and so, somehow in school or whatever, I, I either saw a reference to a, a book that had just been published on UFOs, and I read some of these uh, sightings in the in the newspapers, and, and I was just hooked. I, I recall seeing, believe it or not, one of, the, one of the very first books I read was George Adamski's Flying Saucers Have Landed. And okay. I've since learned that a lot of prominent uh, UFO researchers in the field had that as their first book. But uh, once I got past that, and I realized that the, the true UFO phenomenon is is just 
amazingly intriguing. And I, I never let, sort of left off my interest in the field from that time until, until this time today. I'm still as intrigued as I was uh, 50 plus years ago. So was that the first exposure you had was uh, Damsky's book or was it something that you saw on TV? What was your kind of um, thoughts on, on life elsewhere? Well, you know, going really back far I, before I really was into reading UFO books per se, I, I do recall reading the Kecksburg incident in the in our local paper in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and that was '65, I think, something like that. And yeah. So that might have been my first exposure to a UFO report, and I might have said to my folks or something, "What are UFOs? What's going on here with this?" And uh, then over the subsequent years, I would encounter a few other cases. But it, it, it finally came down to one day in 1968 where I was just walking through a field and I thought, gee, what I need to do right now is, is read a UFO book. I, I just want to read a book on this and start. I, I, I just felt intensely curious to want to just dive into the subject. And that's what I did then in the, in the summer of 68 is when I started really focusing my energies more on uh, the true UFO phenomenon and the UFO problem, whatever it might be. Interesting you say problem. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, a challenge um, for those who are trying to find something that you can hold up as tangible. Um, it's funny, I'm, I'm, I'm working on this script right now and, and I'm trying to deal with exactly that. And so there's a line in it, which is, you know, anything that you can repeat in like a lab setting you can quantifiably say, yes, this is, you know, this is evidence of this, but you can't do that. And you can't repeat the Northern Lights. You can't say, oh, hold on, I will make it come up, you know, in two weeks from now. It just is its own, you know, thing, a life of its own. Yeah, yeah, correct. And I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting a little tired of hearing about how, and, and I know UFOs are, in just the way you described, non-repeatable, but, but like the Northern Lights, they are repeatable in the sense that we know we're going to get hundreds of UFO reports each year, thousands, actually, MUFON gets thousands, and of those thousands, hundreds remain un, unexplained or unknowns. So those are always repeating year after year. And what repeats also is their behavior, their shapes sometimes, and their characteristics, and other subtle, subtle events and effects. That keeps repeating year after year. But you're right, we can't summon it up on a laboratory bench, anything like that at this at this moment. We don't know when the next sighting is going to occur. It could be right over your place right now, or it could be over who knows what, any place in the US or Canada or the world seemingly. Yeah. We don't know. <laughs> and that's the other thing is that people like to say it only happens in America or it only happens out in the country. And uh, the, the evidence, if anyone were to take a look at some evidence, uh, there's a heck of a lot of it. That shows that this has, you know, been around for a very long time in all different areas. Um, you know, if you just look at the uh, the uh, Brooklyn Bridge, uh, Linda um, story alone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but so, okay, so you're interested. You have an interest in this. When do you start taking it kind of serious? Because first you went into the academic academic um, path, and you're doing a double major here. Which is, uh, you know, pretty uh, intense. Could you repeat that, Dean? I just you just dropped off there a little bit. Sure. So you go off to college, and you're still holding this, and your double major kind of reflects that. Mm -hmm. You know, the subject matters that you're um, studying Earth studies and and uh, astro um, or uh, physics. Um, so, how does that incorporate? What do you 
when you're going to, to college there, how are you feeling like you're going to incorporate this into your, your interest? I, well, in the I, field? I, I can't say as I had any thought, such a highfalutin thoughts like that. I, I really didn't know how I would incorporate my interest into UFOs into any kind of, of an activity at that time and point. Yeah, you know, when you're, when you're going to college, at least my experience was that, geez, I got to get through these classes. And I was reading stuff on the UFOs when I could, but okay, I have to get through the classes. Then after I get through college, I have to find work. I have to find something to do. And UFOs didn't pay money. It wasn't something that you could choose as a, as a vocation uh, to, to, to immediately start off and get a full-time job in ufology. I knew that wasn't going to happen. So after I graduated, my interest in UFOs for a number of years thereafter uh, still remained that of a looking through uh, magazines and you know doing a lot of reading. And little by little, I started to to to, uh, to creep a little bit closer to the field. I met Stan Friedman. He spoke at our college one one uh, day in October in in the, in the fall, I guess it was, and. I got some of my professors kind of interested in that and they went to see Stan Friedman and they were very impressed. And I crept into the field and joined MUFON in the 70s. But I, I have to admit, it wasn't until I was, was really rather established in my job at the, uh, at the patent office, the United States Patent Office here in Virginia, that I made the step to really reach out to a group. And that was the Fund for UFO Research, which was headquartered in the Washington DC area. And I knew all the principles by name in, in, in that group, but I had never met any of them. So I knew Richard Hall and, and I'd heard of Don Berliner and Bruce McAbee and all those kind of people, but that's the group I, I fell in with. And um, so in any, <laughs> that's just how it was. And, and oh, you froze there. I that they had in looking at cases, and 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 I still adhere to a lot of what they said, and and looked at the subject the way they looked at it. So, um, was this before or after NASA when you worked with NASA? Uh, yeah, NASA, NASA was nineteen seventy four. So my my actual uh, integration into the fund for UFO research would have been nineteen eighty six. Okay, so so you're doing you're working in the patent office, and that's um, before your work at NASA, correct? Uh, that was after. Yeah. After. Okay. So then let's back up and, and hit the uh, NASA note. So how did NASA come about working there? And, and what was, um, what was, what were you well, doing? That, that was mostly a summer job, unfortunately, and it lasted for a number of months. But uh, curiously enough, I, I don't know how these things happen, but I, but I ended up on, on a, on a project at, at NASA headquarters called the CSAT project headed by a guy named McCandless. And so I was involved with that and helping write up technical documents and edit things and doing whatever they said to do. And and I wish that had lasted and I could have gotten a FASA, but it just didn't work out. And maybe I wasn't aggressive enough, but anyhow, I ended up at the patent office uh, some a few years, I think it was three years after my NASA uh, stint, I was working at the patent office. I would have gotten kicked out of uh, NASA. I wouldn't have lasted as long as you because I'm I'm a, that UFO geek who would be grilling them. Everyone, I'd go to the janitor. You see anything kind of out of the ordinary? Anything going on here? Well, that's a good thing. That's 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 to be applauded. And one time when I was at NASA, it was the summertime, and I was walking out of the building, and I stopped into the their they had a little bookshop at that time, 
in the headquarters and a woman was working behind the desk and she was on the phone. I, I had a question or something like that for her. I can't recall right now what it was, but she hung up at the phone and said, gee, I just got a UFO report. Oh, no and way. Said, what, did he, what, 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 what was it? What do they say? And, and she, she said a few things, and this was now 40-some years ago. And, but she said, I just, we, we don't have anywhere to, to, to transfer those things. And she just she didn't hang up on the guy, but she was polite and courteous to him and ultimately hung up. And, and that's the way UFO reports were treated when they came into at least the gift shop there. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. Wow, we've come a kind of a long way from the gift shop at NASA to uh, the UAP task force. <laughs> yes, um, some may argue the other way, but um, it's, it's, yes, in some ways we haven't, in some ways we haven't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so you're working at NASA now. How do we go from NASA to the Patent Office? Which, uh, as you know, the Patent Office is is ripe with conspiracy theories. Um, and so, did you? go into that with any idea or any uh, exploration need to explore desire to, or was it just, Hey, I've got a connection at that office. Yeah. I, it was a kind of thing where my, my folks said, you know, you're going to have to get a job. And I, I, I had applied for government positions and, and then suddenly I was offered one even, even without an interview. So beggars can't be choosers. Let's put it that way. So I packed up my bags and moved from uh, Northeast Pennsylvania down to uh, Virginia and began working at the patent office and whatever was going to happen to me was going to happen. And I ended up in a lot of different, working in a lot of different technical areas in, in the patent office, which were some, some of which were quite interesting. And eventually for the last 16 years or so, oh. that's, that would have been the place I wanted to be in right from the beginning. So it sort of worked out okay. What did it, what excited you about it? What what got your interest in well, that? It was aviation, you know, and you'd be working on satellite stuff, uh, launch uh, launch technology sometime, uh, aviation technology, uh, ailerons, every, every, all parts of airplanes, triangular of anti gravitational technology, well, you know, just something like that. I, I would get those kind of applications, but uh, every patent has to be. You know, I don't want to get into a big uh, description here of, of how how complicated the patent patent application process is. But basically, patent applications have to describe whatever the invention is in sufficient detail that, that a person who is skilled in the area to which the invention could make or use the invention just by reading what the inventor had to say about it. So if you invent a, an improvement to a landing gear to an engineer, an aeronautical engineer, it, it ought to be pretty clear to that person. Oh yeah, okay. I see exactly how this person's building this this uh, landing gear based on his specification. I see exactly what he claims to say is his invention, and I understand it. But if someone submits an application that talks about recognized uh, by uh, in, in 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 at least normal physics today. And we just don't have anti-gravity devices. Obviously, we plug into our, our our airplanes to make them fly. It's you, you just you just can't even really work on the application. You give them a certain type of a technical rejection that says it doesn't adhere to uh, science as we understand it, and that's that. That's how you deal with them, right? And that's how I dealt with them. And I even okay was in the classified area, and I can tell you that the same principles applied there even classified projects still have to adhere to physics and engineering as it's currently understood in the world today. 
you can't just say, oh, I put an anti-gravity device into the bottom of this satellite and then it just can take off by itself from the surface of the earth. Sorry, <laughs> that's not going to fly patent-wise. So if I were to like donate to your Patreon account, you could tell me what some of this classified information was, some of these patents? Well, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it I'll take a, that as a no. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> Let's just say, I, I, you know, I, I wish I had uh, all, all, okay, let, let me put it this way. Here's an interesting way of putting it. And this is 100% true. I did get across on a number of times, uh, probably 10 or fewer times in, in the course of my uh, patent examining uh, career, disc-shaped aircraft or saucer-shaped aircraft. And none of them, they, they were all unclassified. And I looked at those things and, and they people would put, uh, they'd have a saucer-shaped craft and they'd put some kind of a, a, a lifting engine in it, a, a, a rotating fan might be a good thing. And they might have a series of those around the circumference of the saucer. Then they'd have something that gave a horizontal impetus to the thing. So once the fans lifted it off the ground, it had a, a something at right angles to the uh, to the surface of the earth to push the thong, so they could they could fly where they wanted to go. But each and every one of them I worked at adhered to conventional aeronautical and engineering technology. They might have been improvements on it, and I ended up giving these people patents, but there wasn't anything mysterious about how these things worked. So and they're all public them. documents. They're all public documents. You can read, read, read them. <laughs> and none of them was uh, Bob Lazar, I'm guessing. None of them was Bob Lazar. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I want to dive into, um, oh, hold on. We've got a question here from Steve Long. Uh, Robert, can you elaborate on, on Ho the Pa patents? Ho the Pa patent. Patents were about uh, were able to be approved how they were without such uh, clear standards. That's a good question. I was trying to figure out the name of that. Yeah, I'm, I wanted I'm, to mention I'm that. Familiar. Yeah, I'm. I'm that, that, that's a really good question. And uh, the the examiner of the uh, of, of the pious application, the one that this individual is probably reporting to. If I had like 15 seconds or 20 seconds, I could I could pull that from the papers behind me and show it to you. But but anyhow, I. I, I don't think that well I, I hate to bad to, to badmouth or say anything really poor about how 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 something what the, what the patent office issues but I'm not a hundred percent sure that that pious device which describes a device that's capable of moving at tremendous speeds in the water or in the air or in in space where there's no air at speeds far beyond what we have achieved as as human beings on this planet and it, it's it's a very short patent and it's got uh, at the end of every patent, they have what they call the claims, and the claims describe, they, they claim what the inventor believes to be his or her invention. The claims are very, very short, but like I said earlier, the application, including this pious application, should tell that if you're an engineer, you could make and design and use this invention. And I don't see anybody flying around in the pious device, and I don't think it would I just don't think we have the technology to be able to uh, replicate that device. And to be honest with you, to be frank, I'm, I'm a, a little unclear how that got a patent, but it did. And it was sponsored by the Navy and Pius worked for the Navy. And if the Navy had thought this invention could be reduced to practice, I guarantee you this would have had a secrecy order imposed on it. It would never have been let out publicly because enemies of the United States, enemies of 
the free world, whatever, could make this thing and uh, and dominate the skies, but they aren't. Yeah, that could be a whole show. For those of you who, who don't know about this, it was a, um, a device or vehicle or the, the promise thereof um, that this thing would be able to fly with uh, new technology that so far we don't really have. And I always thought, well, if the government was going to do this and they absolutely had to have a patent in order to control it, um, that you would do it in bits and pieces. And then when you put it all together, you would then have all those pieces covered and no one could do that, even though they wouldn't you know, have the whole structure of it. It could just be like assembled with all these various patents, correct? Well, each patent's got interview today, he would say, I presented a complete working device. That's my device. And I, I set it forth in engineering language and in the, the technical terminology that's required. And um, that's what it is. And that's how it works. But I assure you, if you read the thing, it's not all that clear how it works. And I, I don't want to keep going on and take up the rest of your hour on this. But I, I have looked into the, the what papers publicly are available on this pious patent. The whole file is available for public consumption. On, on on the internet and okay. through, the, through the patent office, and you can see how how this this application wended its way through the patent office. And I have my own opinions on what happened to cause this to become a patent. But there's nothing mysterious about it. It's just the way the patent system works. And the fellow got a patent, and I know for a fact the examiner couldn't find this invention in all the prior patents. He looked through them all. I know the examiner of this patent. He, I helped train him when he came into the patent office. And um, oh, wow. a, a guy named Phil, I think his name is Phil Bonzel. And, and he's a very, very good examiner. He's a very good engineer and, and scientist. And he couldn't find it. And long story short, if I can't find it in the patent literature or prove that someone else is... Basically, that's what happened. Oh, you froze up. But I think basically what you're saying is if I can't find it um, in, in our records, then it's not going to fly by you. That's no unintended. Yeah. Okay. Assuming it's understandable, you know, and they write it properly and everything like that. But yeah, then then we let it go. Yeah. If it's trivial or if it's complicated and very important, they get a patent. <laughs> okay. So um, now you're working within that. And then on the side, you're you're getting dialed in with uh, MUFON, correct? Uh, well, actually, with the fun for UFO research first, that went on for about 15 years before I really, or even 18 years before I really got on the MUFON's board. But the fund for UFO research, I mentioned it's based here in Washington, uh, we interacted with all the other groups. So we would be at meetings with Walt Andrus and John Schusler, and we, we would... Uh, encounter other independent researchers and, and have chances to meet with them. And so we were pretty well connected as, a, as an organization. And we, we would, the, the fund was set up to be a non-membership organization and, it, and we would use that money and funnel it by, back into scientific research. And I swear that we probably raised and, and, and gave back into the field well over a million dollars raised from donations and people buying our publications, that's that sort of thing. Uh, so, wow, that's, yeah, that... it, it was it was fascinating. I must say, they they had a good idea, Dick Hall and 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 Bruce McAbee when they and others when they set up the, uh, the when they set up the fund. It's interesting because people have that idea that oh, you can make money 
and UFOs and alien research. And it's just like any other research. And it's like, well, yes, in a way, if you're doing research and you need to show that I'm going to go out and I'm going to study this certain type of, say, wildlife, you can get grants, et cetera. But for UFOs, it's, you know, an alien, it's very difficult. It's just, it's not a job that you can get. It's a job that you have to get funded. And so, you know, unless you're writing books, you can maybe, you know, do well. But <clears throat> most of the people who are writing books, that's that's not their main, you know, sustenance. It's it's other things in conjunction with. It's passion that drives it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're 100% right, Dean. There have been some people who, I mean, for a little while, the Fund for UFO Research paid a researcher a full-time salary because we got a grant, a large grant, a couple hundred grand, and we were able to pay this fellow back around the turn of this century. To oh, you froze up there. With abductees. Sorry, but, I'm just going to back you up. You froze up. Say again, Rob. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. No worries. Uh, yeah, yeah, we got a grant from a, a large benefactor around the turn of the century, and basically we used, we got the grant because we were going to build an instrument package, and we ended up building 13 or 14 instrument packages that were then placed in the putative bedrooms and homes of abductees with the hope that they might capture something during an abduction account. And uh, so we had enough money to pay to pay someone to constantly monitor these boxes each and every day. But this is funds that you had to go out and raise. It wasn't something that automatically, I mean, you had a donor who came Abs in. Ab absolutely. Yeah. Too hard well, to come by. Right. From Very hard to come by. We, we never got any government grants, of course. And ufology still doesn't really get, uh, civilian ufology doesn't get any government grants. It would be nice if the National Science Foundation were to, 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 to give several million of dollars to UFO research, but so far it hasn't happened. So, um, so you're doing this this research where you have different sensors, I'm guessing, and people's abductees or experiencers, as we call them now, mm -hmm. um, their home. What did, did that generate? Anything was it promising? Well, it was promising. It has a, it has a sad ending, and we, we've we've all heard that like way too many times. We, we got this funding to put the boxes out there and each box was in a house for anywhere from three to six months. And it was an elaborate scheme we had for how the person was supposed to log in every day. They had to write a journal and s talk about their memories of the night before. It might just be, I had no memories. Or if they had what they thought was an abduction experience, we asked them to write it down. Uh, we tried to keep things in the blind from, from the full-time who was working full-time on the project so he wouldn't really know who the people were and uh and we we got all this data and then it we, we the, the funding didn't come through to have it the very voluminous digital files of this stuff uh analyzed to see whether or not experiences occurred on the nights when people might have said they thought they remembered being abducted in their journal and to this very day that's that's still a that we're, we're still trying to come up with and, and analyze this data and little by little it is getting analyzed and i i don't know if there's any black and white signatures so far that have been found my guess is no but uh, there were, were some interesting there were some interesting correlations yeah i um i went to a um a zero support group meeting and there was a um a major in the army um who asked me if I could come and plant cameras. 
I figured I'm a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I could get in there. And he says, don't tell me yes or no, you know, with regards to when you're going to do this, because if I know, I'm pretty sure they're going to know. And ultimately, it, it seemed like um, it was, you know, when you do something like this is, is, you know, interesting it is, you have to kind of tread lightly. You know, you don't a want to be doing a fool's errand because um, I think whatever it is that that is running things knows what's going on much better than we do. Um, but, I, you know, when I think about the way that most of the footage has been captured, it's been almost accidental to a degree. Like I keep waiting for um, Amazon's The Ring, you know, those cameras when they <laughs> drop off the boxes and stuff that you can see that 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 they're going to capture something, but they don't seem to come through the front door. That's the yeah. only problem. Yeah. They, they, can't, they may come through the front wall, but you're 100% Maybe right. Maybe the front wall. Come right. the front door. <laughs> or front window, for that matter. So um, Yeah, or the front, the front window, right. Or the ceiling sometimes. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, interesting. So um, you, you're, you're doing that experiment, working with that group, and then talking about how MUFON, was MUFON kind of like a graduate program? How was it looked upon at that time? Uh, well, MUFON was looked upon as 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 equal. It would be like being traded from uh, or going from, uh, you know, the Toronto Blue Jays or something like that in baseball. You know, maybe they yeah, yeah the teams are basically at the the major league level, and that's how MUFON always was. John Schuster asked me to be on the board in around 2004, 2005, and the fund was starting to to wind down because some several of the principals were getting fairly old and weren't as active as before. And the internet put a whole new spin on things. It was uh, not, not as easy to, uh, to, to make publications and sell them. People wanted to read stuff online as they still do. And they found a lot of ways to, to satisfy their UFO urge. They didn't have to keep buying our publications. Now, when, we had, when the fund had, a, had a scientific work that was done, one of the pre- uh, requisites, the prerequisites actually was that the the researcher had to publish his results or her results in a paper or a monograph or however large it however long it it took to to set forth the results in in, in a publication that we could sell so we had that that's how we would get these publications more or less and they would all result from work that we had uh undertaken but that sort of dried up around the turn of the century and john schuster asked me to be on the board of mufon and walt andrus had left a few years earlier and so so I said yes, and uh, I've been on the on the board since since that time, through several wow. international directors. <laughs> so um, I'm kind of, uh, and I, you know, I, I know that that anything can be um, a challenge when you're working in any type of organization. Um, you know, whether it's Google right now, where a whole bunch of people <laughs> got let go, or it's it's MUFON. Um, what were some of the challenges? Uh, you're still with MUFON. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a different. I, I made the analogy before between two getting going from one baseball to, team to another, but in this case, it's it, it, MUFON does not operate in the same way as as the fund did. MUFON, as we all know, is a membership organization, so it always has challenges of coming up with money, of course, uh, from subscriptions in this case to to the MUFON Journal, and from donations and from the sale of products. But we, we're always faced with getting investigators and keeping them on board and training them and having them look into cases. We're always engaged with trying to in, just engage and collect as many UFO 
reports and events as we can. And so we, we've succeeded there. We get four or 5,000 a year easily. And they're all investigated by a large group of, of investigators throughout Canada, throughout the U.S. and other countries. And so, it's all, yeah, it's, 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 uh, there's a lot of challenges posed there to the people who actually run the organization on a day-to-day -day basis. So when you're doing this, um, what field in particular are you studying? And is it like, it's, it's kind of like, oh, Rob, we go to for technology doing certain things. Or is it um, areas that you start out in one and then you kind of progress where well, your sweet spot what's your pocket yeah well it's it's i i'm on on the board and, and it's really is the business board so here here we deal more with the, with the financial things and mufon doesn't do research per se in, in 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 a in an investigatory way they do but they're not giving grants to people to do scientific research like the fund was so no one's actually actually coming to me to say Oh, what do you think we should do in, in with this aspect of the of the subject? That just doesn't happen. Uh, I, 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 we have a meeting coming up uh, tomorrow. To be honest with you, a board meeting. We'll all be together. But uh, yeah, we're we're trying to just run the organization financially, and we have some people on the organization whose purpose it is to basically just see that the field investigators are doing their, their jobs as, as are set forth in our field investigators manual. So those are the people that are sort of have their literally boots on the ground in a lot of cases. What is the, um, not, not to get too controversial. And mm -hmm. I want to move into some of the cases that, that you, um, have kind of, uh, pinned, um, there since 2000, you know, uh, uh, 17 December, when the first stories came out, it's brought in a huge influx of, of people, young people interested in this field and, and are studying this and doing research. Um, everyone will tell you there's kind of a, a, a big step going from, you know, doing the research that you can do now online that when we were young, it was, you go to the bookstore and there's a special section that you go. Some bookstores still have that section mm -hmm. and you would find those few books. And it was always, you know, put together with Bermuda Triangle and, and, right. and other uh, things. And, and, and then you go from that to people who are, again, you know, boots on the ground research going up, knocking on doors, people have reported and doing that. Um, so it's interesting, you know, that both are trying to get, you know, to the answers, but one is kind of more like an arm, armchair expert, which I've been for many a year. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and then the actual people who are working on specific areas, um, you know, like yourself. So the question in there is, what do you see the differences? Have, have you seen um, people coming in? Uh, what is the difference empirically, the evidence and stuff that you're working on that the organization like MUFON and, and the new one that you're in versus someone who's, you know, doing their own you know, research, so to speak? Well, the, the person who's doing their own research, at least in, at, at this point, doesn't have access to as a, a huge a database of cases and all the UFO, UFO organizations, well, all the UFO organizations, the Center for UFO Studies headquartered in Chicago and, and MUFON, for example, both have tremendous uh, case files of, of, of UFO cases. And for various reasons, so an independent researcher who is just decides they want to start really looking into the subject today 
today is going to have a hard time finding out well, what cases are occurring right now. Where were UFOs seen last week? And what types of UFOs were seen? Unless they're lucky enough to read an account in a newspaper or ultimately someone publish, publishes an article in, in a magazine or something, you're not going to have uh, access to these tremendous files. Or now, if you're young, you see it on TikTok. And so if it's not on TikTok yeah, right. or... <laughs> yeah, you can go to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle and all their cases are made public every every month, I guess, Peter Davenport, the director, logs yeah. the uploads the cases. But there's not big descriptions there and he doesn't investigate cases. So you can't sift between IFOs and UFOs. So, but even with access to the case files, we we need more actual research to find out how, what, what similarities are there between the unknowns? What odd quirks might they show that might help us understand how they work or what their modus operandi is or what their intentions are, this type of thing. That's the kind of work that has not been done. In, in, in my personal opinion, I don't think we've moved very far down the road as, as to knowing who's behind or what is behind the UFO phenomenon and why they are here. I think to an, an open-minded individual, we can show that there's a real phenomenon there that's not of human origin, and it seems to be an... A, a oh, we froze up there. Yeah, not, I, a, I not keep, of hu human I, I origin. I don't know why that keeps happening. <laughs> that, that's all right. Uh, you cut out on not of human origin or... Yeah, uh, that, that, but they have an intelligent origin. Uh, yeah. I don't believe they're humans. I, I don't, in my opinion, this is me speaking. I can't scientifically prove it, obviously. But there, there is whatever's behind UFOs is 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 not residing here on the Earth. Let's put it that that way. So um, where do, it is, do you carve out any um, niche for uh, the extraterrestrial uh, hypothesis, uh, Dr. Michael Masters, oh. that they're from the future? R right. Well, or could I, be. The, the, I, I have a problem with the, the future uh, scenario. We all have um, a problem with the future. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, not looking I, too good. <laughs> it's, well, yeah, I, I, maybe, maybe I don't want to be there after I see how where things are heading. But it, it's it's sort of like solving one mystery with another. And I, I I see too many paradoxes there, time paradoxes that that sort of make no sense. And people say, oh, the aliens, they they're, they're humans. Uh, way down the line, we're going to evolve into that. Well, evolution doesn't seem to be drawing humans toward the common perception of, of, of what aliens look like and how they act. They don't act like they, they're our ancestors. They, they don't seem to know what's going on here on Earth, according to some abductees. Uh, so I, they're, they're out there. So it, it, whatever's behind UFOs is, is somewhere out there, but I prefer not to solve war. Oh, breaking up again. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, we have another question, uh, Steve Long in here. Um, why was none of the data or results from the Ambient Research Project ever released as planned? Well, the, re the, the research wasn't released because we haven't gone through it. We haven't sifted through that information yet and, and collated and, and looked at it with experts. And this has been an ongoing thread now for many years on a number of blog sites that we're holding on to this information and we're not letting it out. But uh, our, our intention was at the time to get enough money and we needed another twenty-five dollars or $30,000 to complete the statistical 
investigation of the electronic files to see whether or not, like I mentioned before, we had correlations. That ran out. And then, you know, people left and we just didn't have the 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 wherewithal then to go through those that rather huge pile of electronic data. So I know for a fact that Mark Rodiger at the Center for UFO Studies and myself and and some of the, the original principal in 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 the field who, who was being paid full time, we are still engaging with people, statisticians, independent statisticians. In this case, there's one one guy actually, and who is not connected with UFO groups, who is looking through the data, the electronic data and the notebooks kept by the researchers. And we're going to find out if there are any, if there's any wheat there among the chaff. Yeah, that is really exciting for me. Whenever I hear people that don't normally work in the field, who take their special skill set and say, "Hey, I'm open to applying it here." I feel like that doesn't happen without, you know, what had happened uh, with the Navy Tic Tac stuff. Um, certainly, um, Avi Loeb was uh, was, um, uh, you know, it kind of cleared the way for for his um, take on it. Mm -hmm. um, do you find that that groups like uh, UAPX, as an example? who were like you were doing setting up the sensors and stuff for the abductions that they were doing it in, a, in another way. Is there any overlap or do you guys work in conjunction? Are you dialoguing with each other? Well, I, I personally am not, but I, I know of UAPX and, and I know that uh, the Center for UFO Studies, Michael Rodiger, does interact with a number of those people, not necessarily Avi Loeb, but... Uh, Kevin Knuth and... Dr. Yeah, and there, there's some other folks too. And, and yeah, there, there, yeah, there are a number of, of uh, efforts to make these, uh, call them what you will, boxes or instrument units or what have you. But I think that's a fruitful field. And, and believe me, I'm, I'm very, very annoyed that the AMP project didn't work out here as we expected it to. And it's, it's almost forgotten now. It's a footnote to UFO history. But for some people who sort of keep it alive and, and keep sort of uh, uh, coming down on us a little bit as to what are you guys doing with that information? But it's embarrassing, and we 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 didn't get the job done there. Okay, so for those of you who who aren't familiar with this, can we take out the um, shock paddles and put a more life uh, in into the ant project and talk about um, just over a review uh, what what it was intended? Well, the the intention was to see whether or not there were actual events that abductees described as abductions, obviously occurring in. In a person's life, mostly there we had to decide where do these events occur most of the time in an automobile uh, when they're just walking down the street and in, in a room in their house in a bedroom what have you because we had to put this instrument unit somewhere in to, to situate it somewhere it wasn't portable and so we ended up putting these units mostly in the bedroom of a person because they would say they would be taken in the night mm -hmm. and light would appear and the temperature might go down all this kind of stuff. So we studied and, and worked very closely with Dr. Jacobs and Bud Hopkins at the time to find out what types of uh, phenomena were reported by people during an abduction and what kind of instruments might be used to pick these up. We did not have a camera in the box for the privacy aspects you alluded to before, nor did we have a, 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 a microphone per se. We had a level, a, 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 an instrument that picked up the absence or, or the presence of sound and, and what decibel level it was, but it couldn't make out words or anything like that. So you could say, oh yes, a loud sound just occurred and it lasted uh, a third of a second. So we had a best guess as to what the instruments might pick up 
uh, parts of an abduction and we stuffed those into this box and we plugged it in and hooked it up to a modem and it just went away for three or six months until this the particular uh, abductees uh, uh, So um, it's interesting because AI technology is, it's getting so, I, the first thought came in was scary um, because it's, you know, like I chat. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. Um, what is, I want to say coming, but it's already here because, you know, right. there's Stanford students that, that got called out for using them to write their term papers, uh, the technology. And it's, it is, Jesus, uh, it's insane. I'm interested in in applying that to some of the um, data that has been gathered. I wonder what would be you know derived um, from that, if if anything. Yeah, who 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 knows there, Dean? Um, it's been 20 years now since the AMP project came to an end, and the data we got could be much more easily harvested now with with better equipment smaller equipment less expensive equipment that the study could be redone and this time maybe it could even be something that you could have in a car or it could it, it could use you know wi-fi and, and bluetooth and all this kind of stuff that was a little bit ahead of us we still had to have our units hooked up via by a cable to 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 the uh to the phone lines in in the house so we could modem the information each day but if anybody wants to do abduction research that's a fantastic area to start. And it, it, it's easier to do than it was for us. We had to engage a lab to build this stuff and, and pay someone to design the box. A lot of this is really all. Oh, I'm losing you. A lot of this was really. Oh, yeah, a lot of this equipment is off the shelf now. And yeah. uh, I think the, the AMP project could be done much cheaper and much better, I think, than than we than our pioneering effort to do it. So, what area of uh, ufology, UAPology? I guess we can't say UAP. Oh, that sounds <laughs> no, that that just sounds awful. It does not roll off the tongue at all. Um, what area of it uh, is your your uh, kind of the, the the chewy inside for you, the, the caramel inside? What is the thing that really um, keeps you going? Did it start out with sightings and then become abductions or yeah yeah it, it you know that, that's a good question do you know one ever quite put put it that way to me um i i did morph into abductions for a while into studying abductions my wife and i did and i worked closely with richard hall and we interviewed quite a few people but I, I'm, I'm not comfortable with abductions i certainly think something's going on and uh after the amp project came to an end i didn't see any what, what my continued presence with abductees was going to do, short of reassuring them that the, the phenomenon probably wasn't going to kill them, or they, they, they'd emerge alive after each episode. I would still keep in touch with people and work closely with some of them, but gee, I sort of moved a little bit away from abductions, and I, I'm, st I'm still just back to sightings, unfortunately, and in, in what time I have available, I, I do try to find week basis you you do try to find sorry we lost you again yeah I, i'm i'm trying to find what what sightings are, are are occurring nowadays because i i think the only thing i can do at this point is to try to get an, a scientist or scientists interested in looking into the phenomenon and how can i do that 
the best way to do it is to show that person what kind of cases are occurring today and what's happening today. And you know, working with MUFON to the best of my ability there. And, and because ultimately, if science looks at this phenomenon and gets paid for doing it, they're gonna to have to look at new cases. And new cases are something that MUFON has. They are not gonna look at cases from the 50s as much as we like them and in the 60s as much as we like them. They want new data. And I can tell somebody what kind of new sightings or what the sightings are today and where you might wanna go and who you might wanna speak with. And that's, I think, what I could, I could do. Okay, I want to hit that, but it's it's interesting. I I kind of went the other way. Mm -hmm. I I I mean, I've always been fascinated in all aspects of the phenomenon, um, but I started out interested in the craft and wanting to get footage of the craft and and see it. And I've seen some compelling um, footage for sure. Uh, and I kind of feel like after all these years, and even though everyone has a cell phone, I always like to make the joke. When everyone says, you know, when I get the old, the old knee-jerk reaction, well, everyone's got a phone camera now, so they can be doing. I'm like, yeah, but look at their field of view. You know, no yeah. one is going like this. You know, and so uh, everyone's looking down, and so it doesn't mean that you know we're going to be getting more of this. But um, I feel like it's kind of so far almost capped out in certain things. I mean, I still do not have any shots that I've seen footage that are compelling for me that, that I feel intuitively like, all right, I'm seeing nuts and bolts. I'm seeing mm -hmm. panels. I'm seeing this and that several witnesses have seen those, but I, there's no picture I can hold up and say, Hey, here it is. Here's the panel. Here's a little smudge print. Here's, you right. know, right. They right. left little gas or, you know, a uh, little oil from changing uh, the oil under it. Um, and so for me, it, it always is about, humans always about people the human experience the you know people experience and so i i kind of ended up find myself going back to the experiencers and and looking at at what they have and and i again anything that that i'm pursuing i think we have to look at you know sleep paralysis and all those other prosaic possibilities but mm -hmm. you know i always look for certain things like if someone says you know no my spouse next to me in bed saw the same thing well, two people don't have sleep paralysis. I don't right, know unless right. there's a sleep paralysis dating website app that you you know swipe right for someone that <laughs> that has paralysis while they sleep. Yeah, let's hook up. Um, so it's really, you know, for me though, those things are still of interest. But you know, again, it's it's how do we get that? I hate to use that term because it's like saying disclosure, but the smoking gun. And so it sounds like you've had your frustrations you know, across yeah. the board, but you're still very, uh, you know, optimistic and you're getting, you know, doing sightings research. I, I am. And, and, and one of the reasons I, I, I haven't completely walked away from abductions, you know, and yeah, I would like to find the smoky saucer, but nonetheless, <laughs> but, but Hopkins passed away a number of years ago. Uh, we'd have a guy, we used to have a fellow, Richard Haynes, who was another researcher. He, he's very elderly now and was retired the field. Uh, Dave Jacobs is no longer active in the field. So, so we don't have these large profile, prominent abduction researchers that we had 20, 25 years ago, who were pretty transparent about the work they were doing. And I don't know of anybody I could really point to that is prominent 
uh, I know some abduction researchers, but who is prominent and, and, and is publishing a lot and is making lectures and is saying, here's what, here's what abductees are reporting now. So I couldn't really tell you, are there any new wrinkles in the UFO abduction field now that weren't there in the year 2000 or in 1990? Uh, and, and there's a big hole there. I, and when I read every once in a while, someone will write an account of an abduction who apparently is an abduction researcher. I don't learn anything new. They're just telling me stuff that was extant back in 1980 about missing time and, oh, they can disappear anytime and that they're gone missing. They could go for a walk and have an experience. I know all that. Like, but is anything new there? Dave Jacobs had some very, buy into it or not, as you will, he had a very explicit scenario he saw that was unfolding here on Earth with regard to the so-called aliens and abduction and abductees. Are those things still occurring to abductees? Dave's not around to tell us, but are people still being trained by pe these people who are half hybrids? Are they, are they still being asked, oh, how do I eat or how do I act in public so I can fit in with human society? I have no idea because no abduction researchers are writing about that kind of stuff. That, that's a really good point. We don't have, you know, someone who, who comes from Temple University right. or Harvard or is a, you know, world-class artist like uh, Bud Hopkins. Um, David is still around, but he's, yeah, like you said, you know, kind of inactive. Mm -hmm. But his research in the hybrids, I think, was, um, I would say that would be a specialty. Uh, um, a good friend of mine is actually working on something right now that, um, you know, gets involved in the hybrid program, um, which it's, again, it's, it's, you can tell me anything. You can say that dragons exist, but I need to study you. I need to study the person who's telling me this in order for me to find, uh, you know, something that is relatable to truth because Correct. unless, you know, I can, I can see it. Correct. And, um, you know, it is, that's a really good point. We don't have that kind of person out there. I mean, you know, you know, to a lesser or more or lesser degree, you've got Avi Loeb, who's kind of, you know, the Galileo project who's leading mm -hmm. that. And, and, you know, there's Harvard again, but yeah, we don't, we don't have that. I mean, there's a lot of people not to insult people that do a lot of research like Yvonne Smith, you right. know, um, Barbara Lamb, a whole bunch of other uh, people. But as far as people who are out there on Oprah say, or, you know, you know, writing those books that are covered by the big, we, yeah, we don't, we need that. Yeah. They're not there. And you combine that with the uh, very well-known reluctance of abductees to really go out and be interviewed by people and appear on uh, publicly and or on talk shows or podcasts. Now, the very oh, yeah. few and of them. Speaking of do talk that. shows and radio, every once um, in a while we would get a request from someone in the news media. Can you KGR? I'm sorry, going to interrupt for you for one second. KGR, we're going to be signing off. So thank you, KGRA listeners. Um, uh, continue. We'll be going to uh, YouTube as we continue here, but uh, sign off there and thank you for listening. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just saying that that every once in a while we would get a request from a, a news media person. Can, can you direct me to an abductee that I could interview or speak with? And I always cringe when that request comes up because they, abductees or experiencers don't like to do that. They don't really like to give lectures at the MUFON Symposium on their experiences. You get the rare one that will, but it's not very common. And so that even makes it more difficult 
Okay, to, uh, that that is really interesting, um, Rob, because I always uh, analogy I use whenever I hear someone who's who's inclined to look at it in, in a humorous way, um, the tinfoil hat, you know, um, slant. It it's always very upsetting because I say, you know, you're going to say, oh, really? It was a UFO? Was it triangular? Was it a flying saucer? Um, and then they, you know, do they probe you? Do they do this and that? And I always say, okay, what if I said, oh, you were abducted by another human? Was it a black van or was it a white van? You know, was there rope in the back? Did they do yeah. this and that, blah, blah, blah. And so when you have abductees that go and speak in, in front of people that have to do that, it's like saying, I'm someone, and, I, and Grant, I know there are a lot of experiences that, that, that have made their peace with with that type of relationship that they're you know having with these uh, beings but but there still is that aspect of i have to go and say here's this traumatic thing where i was overtaken i mean that's the fact and and i'm i got to speak about it so how many people who are you know who have been abducted by other humans and stuff want to get up on stage and speak about that and talk about that and do selfies with people you know right. and some of these cases as you well know are, are enormously personal. It's difficult to do it even in the privacy of a room with, with the abductee to, to ask them some of the questions you have to ask in order to give a to give a get a complete review of what occurred to them and all kinds of questions and and some of them are very touchy. And then you're going to say to a person, "Oh, do you want to go up and, and talk at the Mufon Symposium about this particular abduction?" Hell no, they're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I always feel like whenever I'm I'm asking someone to do that, I you know I, I worked on crime shows for 20 years, and it's like going and talking to the victims again. You know, a lot of these people are not you know victims. Some of these people have done TED talks and stuff. You wouldn't know it. Mm -hmm. uh, they're functioning and they're able to to um, you know look at it like it's this relationship thing. Especially like you know Whitley Strieber will say that, but but at the end of the day, it's still you know going up and asking people to say yeah you know, share this. And it's kind of like, well, why am I sharing this? You know, are, are yeah, we furthering the agenda along or is it just kind of entertainment? So somewhere between the two, I think is, uh, is where it at least should lie. So what are you excited about today in the UFO field? What, what gets you up, what gets you excited? Uh, well, the, the, the prospect that maybe uh, th things might open up a little bit with regard to the, uh, the government sightings and the frustrations that are behind their their research and and they're, they're they're obviously have pushed into the the tent here the at least the U.S. government has, and uh, and what what's going to come up you know after they turn the crank on the other end there, and so it's from from that aspect it's just pretty exciting and and Mufon has been working a little bit with some of the congressional committees, so I'm, it will be interesting to hear exactly how far some of that that has gone. I don't know where it has gone, and so we have. The possibility that maybe there'll be some more definitive conclusions about some of these sightings than we have received in the past. I'm not tremendously hopeful that that's going to happen, but hope springs eternal, I guess. <laughs> um, there's a question here I can see in the chat uh, by Dr. Richard. Um, he says, can't the ETs present themselves in the ways that they want us to perceive them? in ways that may be deceptive. Um, well, if they want to be deceptive, that kind of, um, that kind of answers, uh, that question in and of itself that, that they do want to be deceptive. So the question is why, why would they want to be deceptive? 
Yeah, well, that, Dean, that's that's completely speculative because you you and I could do another three hours of podcasting and could just speculate on exactly why they might be doing what what it is they seem to be doing, but uh, we we don't know, uh, and I, I don't know why UFOs appear like they do or why abduction really why abductions occur. Uh, if we're dealing with, I always end up by saying if we're dealing with a, an alien species or an, a non-human intelligence. We don't know how that intelligence is going to act. Their logic doesn't equal our logic. Uh, the things that we would say, well, they should land and, and make contact with the leaders of the countries. Well, that may not be in their playbook. Uh, I, another thing I, I sometimes have said is that Woody Allen once wrote about UFOs, and he said, for all I know, maybe they just like to hover. So, you know, <laughs> that's as good an answer as almost any. Uh, right. You know, my, my cat doesn't know why I I do the things I, I do, and I don't know why she does the things she does. And <laughs> and the cat's in the house all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, it's kind of interesting because um, looking at it from that that other perspective, you know, it's uh, it's it is a challenge because you know, again, whenever I hear someone who is is like an astrophysicist, and they say, well, you know, the physics are the physics; it's the law; it's this or that. And it's like, no. They've changed a few times over the history, and and mm -hmm. and Einstein himself has been rewritten, you know, a, a couple times, and so I think it's you know we don't know what we don't know, and for me it's you know I kind of um, if I can step out and 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 take my frustrations and, and compartmentalize it, I'm left with, well, I guess we're not supposed to know the ending, you know, the third act, the climax mm -hmm. of this yet, and you know, for researching bears. Um, you know, we tag them, we knock them out so they don't rip our heads off. Um, we do the same type of, you know, we take, uh, you know, stool samples, we take blood samples, et cetera. I'm not going to drop myself off in a den of bears and just assume everything's going to be fine. Um, you know, we're definitely a, a violent, you know, species and, and, uh, still warring heavily. Um, I think we have, we'll have better luck with that when we get our, you know, what together. And, um, and, and, you know, we can all agree on, you know, certain things that are empirical, like not killing your fellow man mm -hmm. and not doing things that, that want to make them kill you. <laughs> so when we get to that, then we know, all right, well, there's no, you know, um, danger here, but barring that I'm not, I'm not sure as much as I really, you know, would like to see them and have it be a formal thing, but it's, again, it's kind of like, um, you know, I, I don't, we can't handle their technology. We keep screwing up or weaponizing everything. So I don't, I see both sides. I don't know where yeah. you sit on that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I basically, yeah, I, I do. I am still enthusiastic about the study of UFOs. I, I still like reading about what's occurring both from a research point of view and from a sighting point of view, but, but truly I'm, I'm not sure we're going to learn what the answer is for maybe hundreds of years. I, I, you know, and I have a hell of a lot of years left in, in my life here, but I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to see this resolved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if they've, if that, the research that, that was done where they were able to uh, regress uh, that mouse, um, de-age them, <laughs> you might get a chance. You might get a shot at it. Who knows? Yeah. Get, yeah, who knows? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, just kind of looking forward, what are, what are your hopes for the field? What are you, what do you, hope to gain that you feel is realistic? Well, I think it ultimately is realistic that we'll get more civilian 
researchers, engineers, scientists, uh, in private industry and just in, in academia looking at the subject, maybe by virtue of reading some of these government reports where they keep reiterating that there are things they can't explain. And I'm so my, my hope is that we'll get, like I say, more civilian researchers in, involved in this where we'll have more transparency as to what's going on. Because every time the government comes out with a report, parts of it are classified. We just get a little bit of the story. So it needs to be in the hands of, 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 of the, of the non-military establishment. And I think maybe at that point we could see some progress. Yeah. It's interesting because so far it's been the most effective um, kind of covert operation, if you will. If you look at at these um, these visitors, um, the way that they've you know operated without you know fully committed to revealing themselves, mm -hmm. you know, for you know um, decades, if not centuries, uh, and beyond, um, it really is a, a pretty well comparatively you know um, uh, operation, but it definitely does seem like an you know an operation that's that's being done it it, it does and, and to a certain extent they know us better than we know ourselves uh, if you want to look at it like that they seem to know how far they can go with regard to sightings and then pull back so that it doesn't quite tip the barrel over into getting the humans all stirred up and they'll start a research project and they'll really figure out what's going on but they just managed to keep on the periphery of our uh, society and our culture uh, and like you say, they're not quite tipping their hands. Yeah. And it's also interesting how people react. And I, I'm, I'm, it's kind of like my, my last few questions here mm -hmm. is when people do react to seeing this, like as an example, when I had, um, uh, when Dave Foley was a guest, he had seen his first UFO only months before. And, uh, with, uh, Jeremy Corbell who hadn't seen, um, uh, a UAP and they saw this thing and, Neither of them, and Jeremy's a filmmaker, neither of them pulled out their phone and took the picture. They just looked at it and went, oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's one of those. That's, that's you know, a UFO. Uh, as it went by, that wasn't the exact dialogue, I'm sure. But they both agreed, oh, shit, this is now, we've seen, we're seeing this thing. And it seemed to Dave like it put on a little bit of a show. It's like, here, we're here, and now we're going to go. And... Uh, you know, a lot of people claim that they look up and they're able to almost invoke it. It comes, it does its thing. There's a little show and Robbie Graham will say. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the researcher Mike Schwartz has written an, a number of articles on the fact that, and one of them was even titled something like, they know where you live or they know where you are. Yeah. That some of these sightings are seem to be deliberately engineered for the people who are seeing it. And if you were just a few feet, literally 100 feet to one side or the other, to the right or the left, you wouldn't have seen this object. It would do what it did, and uh, yeah, he's they, they know where you live. I think is 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 what Mike Mike wrote on. But yeah, it's there, there does seem to be a personal interaction every once in a while between a witness and and the UFO when it's just a sighting and not an abduction. Well, the connection is to me um, just like endlessly fascinating. That I mean, when I think if I were to see a UFO, I've not seen a UFO. I think I would, you know, be kind of elated and would be taking this in and oh my God and the whole thing. And I know that some people do have that reaction, but for Dave, he felt like it was this kind of this wash, this mild Xanax 
shower <laughs> that <laughs> calmed him. And it was just like, wow, I'm now in the moment watching this thing and I'm just going to appreciate it and go almost like the vehicle, whatever was in it, whatever energy was controlling him from, you know, a couple miles away, however far it, it was. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I have heard similar descriptions of uh, the aftermath of a UFO sighting from people. Yeah. So um, what is the next um, phase for you? What are, what are you working on next? What's uh, what's exciting for you? What is? Well, so, so some of it's pretty mundane. I, I end up uh, helping out with the MUFON Journal each month. So every month, like uh, literally like clockwork here, I have to uh, do some of the copy editing for the articles coming in. So that takes up a lot of my time. And uh, I'm now working a little bit with the uh, the National UFO Historical Records Center in Albuquerque with Dave Marler. And so that that's an up and coming project that has great promise in finding a place for storing records and valuable sighting information, possibly down in Albuquerque. And so, yeah, I have a, a number of irons in the fire there from that regard that uh, always keep me... Uh, keep me going, not to mention things that have nothing to do with ufology that seem to intrude on life. So uh, what can I say? So if you could speak to anyone about this who you think might have answers, who would it be and what question would you ask? That's my final question. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I I, I don't know uh, who, who that would be, to be honest with you, and I'll, I'll let you down there on that. I, I, Damn, I can't Rob. Yeah, I know. I know. Damn it. Oh, it's like... <laughs> I, I, w I wish I could speak with some people who are no longer here in the sense of I wish I could have met Alan Hynek and James McDonald and yeah. Alan and Donald Kehoe. But and, and uh, yeah, I would have a lot of questions for them. But uh, unfortunately, this, I, I don't see that there's nobody sitting on top of a mountain where I want to climb up to the mountain and ask them, you know, what's the truth behind all this? Uh, the, the, that person is just isn't there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, well, uh, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I think this was your first time, right? On yes, it was. Podcast UFO. Um, welcome on board. Great Again, to be aboard. <laughs> um, do you have anything coming as far as that you're publishing or anything coming up, um, that you want to, or, or, um, recommend here before we sign off? Oh, could, could you say that again, uh, Dean? I once again, I dropped off here on my end. Oh, is there anything that you're working on? Any type of um, appearances or anything that you've got coming up that you want to? Uh... Um, no, no, I can't, I can't say that there are. This this is, you know, we have our, our board meeting here in the next few days, and it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And my wife runs the Virginia MUFON, and I know she has a uh, a little conference coming up in this in the Virginia area here in March, I think it is, that I'll, she always asks me to say a few words there, so I probably will. So that's that's where I will be. Nice. What's that called? Uh, the, Virginia Muf the Virginia MUFON uh, UFO meeting, monthly meeting. Okay, great. Um, all right. Well, Rob, thank you so much again for, for being on the show. Thank you, um, Dean. I want to um, um, mention that tomorrow's or next week's uh, show is going to be a pre-recorded show. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating conversation um, with Martin and his guests, which is a uh, I'm going to butcher these names, so enjoy the butchering. Here it comes. Jensen Andresen, Andresen, and Massimo. That's a, a, an Italian name, so I'm going with that. Uh, last name is Teodorani. Teodorani, on their recently released book, Extraterrestrial Intelligence, Academic and Societal Implications. Sounds really interesting. Um, 
This is uh, Dean Aliotto signing off. I do want to let you guys know that um, uh, with the encouragement of uh, Martin and several of, of uh, you guys out there, um, something that I've been thinking about doing for a very long time, I'm finally doing, which I am getting ready to do, yes, a podcast. So it'll be uh, a unique take on this with some levity and uh, uh, some humor, but um, we will be bringing not just um, experts and stuff, but also um, UFO um, folks and, um, and, uh, and the such. So thank you again uh, for everyone's support. And don't uh, forget that uh, Patreon is a great way to say you appreciate Martin's show. So uh, Martin, be safe on the road and um, we will see you next week, guys.